0: Our presentation today is basically educational in nature. We're trying to give you sort of the, the basic facts you need to understand how the grid works, um, how it's regulated, uh, what benefits it produces. Um, we think a well-planned, uh, well-managed, environmentally uh, responsible electric transmission system is really going to be critical to the nation's electricity or energy economy uh, going forward for the next several generations. Uh, And um, in order for us to make intelligent choices about those kinds of investments, uh, we need to know what we're talking about. And that's particularly true of national policymakers uh, here in Washington. Um, In the not-too-distant future, uh, because the grid is aging, A lot of it was built a half century ago. It's uh, congested in spots. It uh, doesn't reach a lot of new uh, uh, fuel resources, uh, energy resources, like wind and even natural gas, uh, that it's going to need to in the future. Uh, But for all those reasons, um, we need to invest more heavily over the next 20 or 25 years. This is a long-term bet. on the nation's uh, economic future, really. Um, I think that uh, electric transmission uh, is probably the most important thing that you never think about, and and uh, uh, today we, we're happier here because we want you to think about it at least for an hour or two, and uh, and our panel is going to uh, tell you an awful lot, hopefully that you don't already know about about the grid and its benefits how it's sited, uh, and so forth. Um, we're gonna lead off with uh, Laura Mance, uh, who's executive consultant for a group called SmartWire Grid. It's a manufacturer of smart transmission distributed series reactors for improved grid utilization. It's a lot of highfalutin words there, but uh, basically we're talking smart grid. Uh, and the transmission system has uh, been smart for a long time. It's getting smarter. Uh, people like Laura have been working hard to improve the grid. She's, uh, uh, she's worked uh, 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 on microgrid issues as well, the University of California in San Diego. She's worked on the Tres Amigas uh, superstation in, in New Mexico, and uh, it's uh, quite quite a career. And uh, uh, she's gonna give us uh, kind of the basic facts as to how the grid works. And uh, do it in, in relatively short order. Can follow quickly with Judy Chang. Judy is a principal of the Bradley Group, which is my estimation one of the top economic consulting firms in the country, particularly when it comes to anything having to do with energy and the electric system. Uh, Judy, uh, Judy, uh, I think resides in the uh, in the Boston office. Uh, she has uh, uh, got. Uh, a master's degree in public policy from the Kennedy School. She's on the board of uh, the Massachusetts Clean Energy Center, uh, founding executive director of the New England Women in Energy and Environment. And, and she's done reports for us before that have been high, really high quality. And we're glad that Julie, Judy's going to talk a little bit about the benefits of transmission, a lot of benefits that frankly are recognized by even a lot of people in the business. Uh, Jeff Dennis, uh, this is the second or third time Jeff has been with us. He is uh, director of the Division of Policy Development uh, in the Office of Energy Policy and Innovation at FERC, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, a a great agency with a lot of folks who are thinking about the future of the uh, electric system. And uh, Jeff is uh, sort of at the top of that ladder trying to... uh, map the the energy future for the nation now uh, jeff is going to talk about economic regulation kind of the 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 uh ferk uh, ferk 201 you know the, the everything you needed to know at least from the, from the basic uh from the basic stuff and uh, uh i'm i'm delighted he's here he's uh he's a lawyer from the university of new mexico law school and uh has a Certificate in Natural Resources and Environmental Law, a BA from Marymount University, I didn't know that one out. Kevin Reeves, uh, Kevin, you can tell is, uh, from his <coughs> wearing. it's a West Pointer. Uh, he, uh, he now works at, uh, at American Electric Power. Uh, he's Managing Director of Energy Marketing at AEP Energy Supply. And uh, uh, AEP is one of our proud members. Uh, he has a Bachelor of Science from West Point, a Master's Degree from uh, Penn from the Wharton School. And, um, and Kevin's going to be dealing with uh, some very complicated issues, and he can explain it in very simple terms. Regional transmission organizations and energy markets. That is, uh, uh, other than the retail energy, the stuff that comes through the walls here to light the room, we're talking about transfers of bulk power across high-voltage lines and the markets that depend on that infrastructure, and uh, uh, Kevin's going to talk about that. Lastly, we're going to focus on siting and uh, uh, siting and permitting. Um, we have uh, uh, two really uh, excellent speakers from two different firms that, that deal with these issues. Uh, Dan Belen, uh is uh, with Ecology and Environment, He's the director of electric transmission there. Uh, he is going to talk a lot about permitting, um, all the various hoops that you have to jump through in order to get a uh, to get a project uh, uh, approved at state and even local levels. Uh, very complicated process. Uh, he's outside right now watching our luggage, but I think he'll be here in time. But, Um uh And Jack Halpern uh, is... Uh, is with uh, uh, StanTech. He's uh, uh, been a, a senior consultant in the energy industry for uh, uh, several decades, and uh, has has seen an awful lot of change in that time. He's going to talk about siting. Uh, his specialty is looking at land management and and uh, and resource issues that are affected by the the uh, uh, construction of electric transmission lines, and um, uh, it's one of the most sensitive issues that that uh, that transmission faces, because, you know, let's face it, I mean, uh, th- this is really great stuff if you look at it from the standpoint of the operation of the system we all d- d- depend on, uh, but uh, it's not something everybody wants in their backyard, so um, uh, Jack will deal with that. Let me turn it over to Laura, and uh, away we go.
1: Hi, I'm Laura Mance, happy to be here. I'm uh, here with a company called SmartWire Grid. We do advanced transmission technology deployment. And my background is a grid operator and grid planner. So I'm going to try to get you through the basics in a fairly short order so the rest of the panel and the, the deep dive they'll take on their topics sort of makes sense. So um, if, I, if I do my job right, everything else will be crystal clear. Uh, I'd like to just go over the the basic elements of the bulk power system, and when we talk about the bulk power system, we're really going to talk about the high wires in in the regular vernacular, and um, I'll talk about how we control the system, what are some of the limits of the system, and um, some of what, what we're looking at in the future or down the road. Uh, So the basic terminology we use in the industry, we talk about voltage. Uh, Voltage is like pressure in your your garden hose. Uh, We talk about current. And so it'll take you back to your high school physics or maybe even before then to know that the current and the voltage working together give you power or if you're doing something with it will actually give you useful work. Um, And I'm not going to go into the engineer's version of reactive power and all of this. um, There are more complicated features on the electric grid. Um, We'll save that for the more advanced piece of this. I'm going to just talk about what we would call real power today and um, just know that there's more to it. Uh, and so when we talk about our house, we talk about either kilowatts or watts. When we're talking about the bulk power grid, we talk about megawatts. It's all how, for how many decimal points and how many zeros you put on the end. We tend to talk about millions of watts or megawatts. And, and so that will be the term we, usually, we use today. Um, if you're working with your home, you, know, you would tend to be talking in smaller units. Uh, The other thing we need to know, and I've taken out all the slides on Westinghouse and Tesla versus Edison, but the, the basic function of the grid right now, it operates on 60 hertz power in the U.S. There are parts of the world that operate on 50 hertz power. That's just, as you're looking at generating stations, they have magnets cutting through a field, just like you did in high school physics. It's how many times those magnets cut through a field. The important takeaway here is that the backbone, or our backbone grid, is based on a 60 hertz alternating current technology. As we move forward with some of the advanced technologies, we talk about DC current, which is a battery current. It's a steady current. And so as you look at renewable energy coming from solar panels and different things, what we're doing is starting to integrate these two kinds of power. I won't go into the art of how you engineer those two things coming together, but just know that there are two different kinds of power that we're trying to integrate into the grid. But as you're working at home 99% of the time, stuff coming in your wall is going to be uh, 60 hertz power. That's the goal. Lights on, 60 hertz. That's all the grid operator really is trying to accomplish at the end of the day. Um, A megawatt is about 800 power in 800 average homes, 250 homes on a peak day in Phoenix. Uh, and this is the uh, kind of more important slide so you can talk about, I'd like to talk about what we're gonna talk about and what we aren't gonna talk about, just to give you an orientation into the grid. So uh, over on my side, you'll see the generating station, the power comes from somewhere. Uh, that, that's a piece of it and it steps up through a transformer. So the transformers are essentially how we give a, a boost up to the power and get it onto the high voltage lines. Once it's on the high voltage lines, we consider it transmission. And so it moves to either a, a customer connected to the transmission system, which would tend to be an industrial facility, or it goes down into the distribution system. And in, a, in another site, I'll talk a little bit about how it's regulated uh, a little bit differently. The important thing is everything's connected. And so there isn't a way to kind of peel off or segregate. Um, so everything's working together all at the same time. As you folks know, uh, we're, we're shifting our supply mix. That's kind of true all, all the time in the industry is, as technologies develop. We look at different ways to produce power, uh, either more efficient ways, more effective ways, cleaner ways. And so, you know, I've just put a smattering of, of different options up here coal, nuclear, wind, gas, biomass, solar, and hydro. Um, We can start talking about storage and how that fits in here, and so every day there's something new on the grid and how we actually create the electrons that go into the customers that are going to be using this. And so you know, we start thinking about little things like our cell phone, uh, or we think about microgrids, which are, in fact, grids behind the bulk grid. And, and if you think about a community like the University of California at San Diego, they're a pretty hefty load. They're almost 50 megawatts for a college campus. And so we start looking at um, a lot of power. My voice just got better. I must have had a power boost. The distribution grid, it's usually um, the smaller wires on the poles that are running down your street. We're not going to talk a lot about the distribution grid today, but know that distributed energy, energy that's you know, being controlled and managed sort of behind the meter all the way down to your electric vehicle charging in your home is all part of the challenge that everyone's trying to figure out how do you make sure that you can safely, reliably, economically hook this all together. And it goes back to that first slide I was showing you. Everything has to work in concert with everything else. And so when we talk about why is FERC here, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, they are the regulator over the bulk power system or essentially sale for resale. And and if you were in a a quiz class, we would say, what is the seven factor test? There are seven things that determine whether you're transmission or whether you're distribution when we talk about wires, Uh, but it tends to be that FERC is looking at the transmission wires and how we're getting things either between states or, or across the high voltage system, and then they hand their regulatory their regulatory jurisdiction ends as you start dealing on the lower voltage systems and as you deal with end use customers, and so those tend to be regulated by your state or in in this instance the DC Public Service Commission. So there are two sets of regulators working on on your electric bill at any point in time. And the other thing we're looking at is how do you, as I said, tying everything together, all the way from your big power plant to your electric vehicle in your garage to the solar panel on your neighbor's roof, how do we make this all work together? That's one of the problems we talk about. But then as we look more and more, the grid is being tied together together Uh, on a large, large footprint. And so some of the people that are talking later, uh, Kevin will talk to you about interconnected systems and, and power markets that go over a large geographic region. As we talk about how you keep the grid reliable, these these regions are um, in the vernacular called balancing authorities. And I'll we'll talk about balancing in a minute. But when you're reading the press, you're reading the trade press, you'll probably see them referred to as either system operators or grid operators or independent system operators. In some cases, for DC, that would be true, or regional transmission operators. And so those are all you know just fancy terms or terms of art to say we we have people that are like air traffic controllers over their own section of the power grid. And as power moves, they will move it just like an airplane over into the next section of the power grid where somebody else has a jurisdictional view of the whole thing. And so that's a little bit of what it looks like. It's a little bit of a mess. But it's, it's also a wonderful thing because it, it is the world's biggest machine. And so what we look at is there are many different voltage levels where power is is moving down and up across the grid. And then on my next slide, oops, it's not my next slide. I'll talk about it in a little while. Um, So we're looking at the, the alternating current system. That system is all tied together, but then you have, in certain places, high voltage DC systems. And high voltage DC systems tend to act like an extension cord. So if I wanted to plug in all the way down to Chairman Hecker at the end of the table, I could run a DC current down to him and nobody else would be impacted. If I was running AC current, I'd have to hand it off to Judy who would hand it to each person at the table. And so that's the difference as to how we use the AC system versus the DC ties in between the systems. There's not a lot of DC in the US. So let me just say that for the first piece of it. The stuff we have is really important. Um, As we mentioned earlier, I'm working on the Trace Amiga Superstation, which is a high voltage DC system to tie three power grids together. So that's some of the advanced technologies that's coming into the grid to try to make sure that we can, in fact, create a national and seamless grid. But the state of play right now, and uh, Kevin will talk more about this, is that we're interconnected into three regions. So the eastern interconnection, which is where we are, goes from the Atlantic Seaboard to the Rocky Mountains. There's another western interconnection, very cleverly named, from the Rocky Mountains to the west West coast to the Pacific Ocean. And there's uh, ERCOT, which used to be the Electric Reliability Council of Texas, and that covers about 80% of the state of Texas, and they are their own grid. And so um, you'll see that there are three, the Western Interconnection, the Texas Interconnection, which is ERCOT, and then the Eastern Interconnection, which is on your right, if you're looking at this. And so each of these operates at its own, as its own machine. It operates at 60 hertz, and everything within it is tied together. Um, so, but we haven't really tightly tied the Western to the Eastern or Texas into anything, um, but we're working on it. The goal of the grid operator is really simple. Everything that's coming on the grid has to match everything that's going off the grid. And that's it. It sounds really simple, but if you try to do it, I, I was once at a, I can't even remember, some display at tba and you had 60 seconds that you had to keep your, your mock grid in balance, and nobody could keep the grid in balance for 60 seconds. It's pretty scary. But there are computers and engineers and operators that know how to do it as their job instead of as their hobby. And um, so essentially, the the way it used to be was that you would match generators. You could ramp them up and ramp them down, and they could follow the patterns of usage from the customers in aggregate. So you're doing this across the Eastern Interconnection, for example. Uh, As we put renewable power onto the grid, what's happening to the supply is not as predictable. And so that's why we're starting to see... uh, Further discussion about distributed energy, about microgrids, about how you would use customer resources to act as virtual power plants, so you have essentially more resources at your disposal to make sure everything's in balance. But that's the name of the game is to keep everything in balance and there are rules that are set by the North American Electric Reliability Corporation, that would be NERP, if you're reading the trade press, NERP. NERP tells you how many times you are allowed to have a mismatch, how far that mismatch can be, and it's all within very, very tight tolerances. And the other thing to make sure is that you always have a solution for what we call a contingency. Your worst thing that can happen, the grid operators are prepared ahead of time to recover from bad things happening. And so it's, it's a very proactive mindset that they go in with to say, not only do I need to be able to deal with the grid in front of me, I need to deal with the grid in front of me should something bad happen. And so just know that there's, there's an awful lot of forward thinking and planning that goes into this. The other thing that's really really a, a unique feature of the electric grid is that it is not a network with switches. So it's not the phone company. It's not the gas company. There are no valves. There are no uh, little little pieces of electricity that are going go here, go there. It's just free-flowing. It's like a water network. And so... When well, we say, oh, we have a contract to move power between two parties, well, the paper knows the electrons are going to b- go between those two points. But the electrons themselves still travel across the path of least resistance. If you're an electrical engineer, it's the path of least impedance. But it is, it is just going to go by the laws of physics and not by the laws of contracts. And that's why sometimes we get into these... Um, uh, robust conversations about why we need markets and how does that, how does that underpin uh, private contracts between parties, and I know other people are gonna talk about that later. Uh, So as we're preparing the grid, we look at thermal limitations, and thermal limitations are really saying, I wanna make sure no lines sag into the trees or into the ground, and so it's a really, really simple thing with an elegant term on top of it that says, I'm gonna respect my grid and operate to its thermal limits, meaning if I I run too much power along a wire, it will heat up and it will sag. And it's really quite simple, but we make it sound really complicated. And then there's this thing called stability. Um, The thing that you need to know is that it's really hard. It's almost like if you could use the grid as a valve, imagine if you tried to close a huge valve that was wide open or just a little bit open. When you go to synchronize or put, put these power grids together, like I was talking about the interconnected operations among these large regions, you need to make sure that they're kind of close together. It's really hard to move the power grid because there's so much inertia in the grid. It's the whole country or two-thirds of the country is the inertia in your grid. Um, And then, as I said, we we make allowances to handle failures. And depending on how close you are to either a critical city or a critical resource, you may have more than the basic requirements. I want to recover from one thing or two things or five things or these things. And so there's a lot of planning that goes into um, managing the grid. We use this term of art called congestion. And congestion is just like you would think it is on the highway. I want to get over there really fast. I'm an electron. I travel at the speed of light. Guess what? There's no room for me. And so one of two, of two things happens. I still try to move power through the line. It sags and falls into the trees. The grid trips off. We don't do that. But that is what could happen. Um, The other piece of it is I'm going to have to find a different way. I'm going to have to find ways to move that power along the grid. And so I move generators up and down. When I have no congestion and my grid's fully utilized and fine, I just operate at what we call economic or least cost, and that's how I arrange what's going to happen next. If I can't get everything in where I need to, I'm going to do what's called a security-constrained dispatch or a... a, um, I'm going to do congestion management, which means I might have to run a more expensive source of power, but the uh, the physics will help me get it to where it needs to be. And so I'm going to give you the ba- very basic physics lesson quickly. Um, so if I had a grid like this and I could get power wherever it was, if I, I would always try to use the cheapest generator. In this case, I would try to use the $15 generator. Uh, and if I had too much load coming out at sea, I would turn on the $30 generator, and then I would turn on the $60 generator. And so the way I would charge the load, generally, is to say, well, whatever the most expensive thing is on, that's what your bill is gonna be for this hour. And this, again, is on the transmission system. How you get your retail bill is a little different. Um, I'm gonna just flip really fast. But sometimes I can't get all the power through. This is an example of congestion. So, I couldn't run 600 megawatts or 1,000 megawatts if my limit is 600. And that's what the computer systems look at. That's what the grid operators look at. And so, all they're going to do in this case is say, well, I can't get it all out of the $15 unit because I have to keep that line loaded at 600 megawatts or it's going to sag so I'm gonna turn on another more expensive generator, and it in fact, it's gonna push power back because it's gonna come down that A to C leg, move back up the C to B leg, and it's gonna give me some more pushback on that. So that's essentially everything you need to know to run a reliable power grid, go out and do it. <laughs> um, and then what happens when we're on the Bolt system, and again, Kevin and Dennis, uh, Jeff will talk more about this, um, is that we price this in where we have open electricity markets so that you know what the value of power is at every locational spot. It's called a bus or a node or a location. Um, and, And so you'll see the power prices on the grid break into many, many prices. When we go to expand the transmission system, those prices inform very quickly and and fairly precisely where the grid needs help. Because what you're looking at is, where do I have chronic high prices, and where do I have splits in my prices, and that's where I know I'm going to need to look at the transmission grid and and see if it's a a long-term problem or a short-term problem. if it's a long-term problem, then I have many more things to do to expand the transmission grid so I can keep it robust, I can keep it working to do all the great things that it does.
2: And Judy is next, thank you. Wow, that is the best presentation on electric system I've ever heard.
3: <laughs>
2: <laughs> it, and very quickly, that's really amazing. Thank you for having me here. I will talk uh, about a little bit about the investment trend in the transmission network, as well as the benefits associated with transmission. Here, uh, here's the content of my presentation. Uh, I, I, I will primarily focus on the drivers of the investments and the benefits of the investments. Here's a graph that starts in 1960. If you can't see the small prints, it's on the left hand side. It starts in 1960 all the way to the projection in, in the next uh, few years. I think it ends about 2017. And you can see the largest investments were actually occurred in the 60s and 70s. That's when we were actually growing our currently existing transmission network. So the a large amount of this is measured in circuit miles. It's one of the units used in transmission investments. And, and this is not even all of the entire nation, but it's approximately, you can see in the near in the last few years, about 3,000 to 7,000 circuit miles per year, and it's equivalent to about six, seven to 16 billion dollars per year. Um, but you can see from the graph that really the recent years are quite low relative to back in the 60s and 70s. And what's also really important from this uh, graph is that guess what those, those investments made in the 60s and 70s they are quite old so we are now the, at the wave at the beginning of the wave to actually replace them or upgrade those investments made in uh, those years this is another view, uh, doesn't capture the entire country, but it's another estimate. You can see by region, the United States broken up by the, uh, by, by the map, and by region, the investments in the last uh, 20 years or so. And you can see that there is a trend to grow uh, due to need, and I'll talk next about what are the drivers for that need. So what, what, what is driving the need for new transmission or uh, investments? First of all, the country is going through a renewable um, penetration increase in um, various different states have a renewable portfolio standard that increases the, the um, desirability as well as the building out of uh, renewable resources. Uh, come with that and a lot of those resources are located in remote areas uh, and we need transmission to bring them and integrate them into the current grid. Load serving and reliability needs. Uh, these are just generally, we're actually consuming more and more electricity. Certainly uh, since the economic crisis, the country has slowed down in general uh, in, in our energy consumption and electricity consumption. But still we're gradually growing. Um, also the economic crisis provided more incentives for consumers to be more uh, conservative about their consumption, so there's more energy efficiency and conservation, and it's a good thing, which means that the growth of the need has gradually decreased, the growth rate has decreased, however we are still growing in our electricity uh, power consumption. So that's what we call load serving, we call the, the consumer serving the consumer load. And reliability. That means as we as that demand grows, the grid has to continue to stay very reliable, just as Laura explained and described. To stay reliable, it doesn't mean for every megawatt out you consume, we build an extra megawatt of transmission. It means that we have to look at the entire network over and over again to ensure and looking forward to ensure that system stays reliable. So the investments very much forward-looking with anticipation of that growth and keeping the system reliable. Um, third driver is replacing and upgrading, just what I, as I showed you in the graph. Because we had that wave in the 60s and 70s of the large bulk system investment, now we're at the cusp of the upgrading and replacing a lot of that infrastructure. And that's also true in our local distribution systems and of course regulatory drivers. Uh, We are now, uh, and we'll talk more about the power markets later with the other speakers, but now we have a competitive wholesale power market. It has additional drivers for using transmission to open up that market so that that we can benefit from the competition. Uh, that's involved in generation selling into the market. And transmission is basically your road, your highway, to invite those generation resources to provide uh, electricity to the consumers. And so you can imagine if you are limited in how much highway you use, there's only so much resources can get on the highway, and so if they're expensive, then you you don't get the benefits of competition. But if you broaden the highway, um, you allow more resources to get on the highway, and therefore it encourages lower cost uh, resources to reach consumers. And of course that's also complicated by our environmental regulations and policies going forward, so not only do we need to consider the cost of the generation but we now have to also consider various environmental impact that they, 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 uh, the, they use up in our, in our economy. Okay, and then inter-regional build as you saw, that the, our, uh, our country is divided into regions, but across the regions, there are essentially gaps around the regions where we still need to interconnect between the regions. So I think there, those are also opportunities and drivers for additional investments. And then the entire, the um, oh, here's the first acronym, a region transmission organization. They essentially uh, represent the regions that we will talk more and more about it by the other speakers. There are waves of planning. So we again, we look forward, as planners we look forward and we anticipate how much consumption that will be needed as well as use of the system from generators. So if we anticipate that say, you know, 5,000 megawatt of remote wind or remote solar to be added to the system, we have to anticipate them at being added into the system and build the transmission to where it's needed. Uh, importance of considering all benefits. So now I'm deep diving into some of the policy questions about transmission. One of the challenges of investing in transmission in a competitive environment is. Somebody has to pay for that transmission. Somebody is always gonna ask, what am I paying for? And the answer to those questions are, here are the benefits of in making this investment versus another investment. So the rest, the, the next few slides are talking about the benefits of transmission. And one of the uh, policy objectives of certainly of WIRES Group as well as uh, all of us working in industry is to help policymakers and planners understand those benefits associated with transmission. Because transmission is not just bringing power from A to B, but it's supporting the entire grid, and it uh, provides uh, expansion opportunities, it allows integration of renewable energy, etc. So what we have done for the wider group that Jim had talked about is create a checklist for policymakers and planners. And this checklist basically says, every time you think about uh, the next wave in investments in transmission, what do you consider are the potential benefits of that investment, just like you invest in uh, uh you know in a highway or a bridge or uh, any infrastructure, you want to ask yourself what are the benefits? Why are we why are we making this large investment? And certainly transmission is a um, capital intensive investment and it's a long-term investment. Once it, you saw that slide, once you place this in the ground, they're gonna last 30, 40, 50, 60 years. They're gonna be there for a long time. So the question about what are the economic benefits associated with these investments are extremely important so every region and all the planners and their policymakers are asking this question because if the costs exceed the benefits then it's not worth your while to make the investment right so that's like if it costs too much and I'm not benefiting from it I shouldn't make the investment but the question becomes well what are these investments and we have made some uh, a checklist of those investments First, these are some terms of art, what we call production cost savings. Uh, Production cost savings, basically, is what I tried to explain before. If you have a larger highway, uh, you allow more resources to compete to serve your customers. So you should get a lower cost of production. So allowing a a wider transmission network or a broader and open access transmission network, you allow more resources to compete to serve that customer, and those And that savings associated with making the transmission investments what we call production cost savings. Next is reliability. You already heard about how important and absolutely central to grid planning is reliability. Reliability is basically nobody notices when the lights are on, but everybody notices when the light is off. And so reliability is saying we are, uh, as an industry, do not tolerate the lights going down. Uh, And resource adequacy is just another word to say, well, how many resources do I need to make sure the lights don't go out? So you have heard probably through regular press about, well, you know, there's a hot summer day and there was all these disruptions. Thank goodness we did not turn, we didn't have rolling blackouts. Thank goodness there were some controlled, uh, you know, management of the grid. But in the end, we have to have enough electrons simultaneously on that grid to serve everybody's needs. So if you want your, you know, pool pump running and your your TV running and your uh, air conditioner running simultaneously, we have together as a grid, we have enough. We have to have enough resource to serve that need. Otherwise. Uh, It's not just your lights go out, but everybody's lights in that region goes out. Generation capacity, cost savings. This is a set of savings that says, if I can build those highways, I can then locate generation in perhaps lower cost regions. So as a society, we all benefit. Additional market benefits, this is another, um, essentially competition benefits, associated competition. Environmental and public policy benefits. Uh, We will then talk, uh, following me, there will be lots of talk about Federal Energy Regulatory Commission and how the policies are set so that transmission build-out can consider state and federal policy objectives because these policy objectives essentially set the next wave of direction of our electricity grid. Uh, and for example, you know, regional, renewable requirements, certainly environmental needs to retire some of the higher emitting resources and allowing lower emitting resources to be added to the grid. Employment, economic stimulus, any time that you have large capital investments, you are creating jobs for that locality, and those are also benefits associated with certain build-outs and operations. And then there are other very specific um, to a project, so a project could be, you know, creating more robustness in an area that's storm-ridden so that the local network is more reliable than the traditional uh, planning. So this is our checklist, and we we have been going around and hoping that all planners and policymakers will consider all of these benefits in um, in, in evaluating projects. Um, let's see. Um, I wanna just very quickly talk about, we have proposed, through WIRES, a planning framework that essentially goes through a very sophisticated planning process, helping planners to think about uh, what are the potential benefits and what are the processes to think about. Again, we're facing a lot of uncertainty in an industry, which means when you're making large capital investments, you have to think about the future, but the future is uncertain, so how do we make large investments? given those uncertainties, so there's a lot of work uh, from a lot of um, um, talented people in that area. Okay, I think I will pass the baton to Jeff. Um, I apologize, I have time, but I do need to leave, but I know all of these people can answer the questions that you might pose to me, um, but if, if you have a quick one or two, I could take one or two questions right now. If not, I will pass my baton to Jeff, great.
4: Thank you very much. Thanks very much. Uh, Good afternoon. It's great to see so many people here. Um, I'm going to talk for a few minutes about the role of regulation in all of this, um, and particularly the role of federal regulation and, of course, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, um, but I'll also touch a little bit on state regulation as well. I uh, always have to start with this obligatory disclaimer. In fact, I probably shouldn't have even introduced myself before. But um, <laughs> any, uh, any views I express in this presentation are just my own. They don't represent the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, any of the commissioners, or the governor. Uh, they're just my So this is kind of just an overview. I, I often uh, try to provide a little bit of an overview of, of where I'm, what I'm going to talk about. But um, just an idea of who's responsible for what. Uh, so you look down that left side. That's everything that is um, under federal regulation and almost always FERC. Uh, so wholesale sales of electricity uh, for resale and interstate commerce. Wholesale sales, subject to FERC jurisdiction. Transmission of electricity in interstate commerce, as we're going to talk about today. Generally, at those higher voltages, like Laura talked about, subject to uh, federal jurisdiction under the Federal Power Act. Very, very, very very, very limited uh, transmission siting authority, which we'll talk about a little bit later, uh, extremely limited. Um, FERC also does a few other things under the Federal Power Act, um, permitting of uh, hydroelectric plants, for example. Uh, but outside of those hydro facilities, that is the only generation planning or facility siting authority that the commission has. Uh, the rest of that, uh, uh, that resource planning and siting authority, as you'll see on the right side, uh, belongs to the states. Um, and of course, we talked a little bit about reliability of the transmission grid as well. That's under federal jurisdiction. So moving over to the right, states really have control of the, over that retail sale to end users. What you pay, Pepco, Dominion, whomever for your power. Um, and then again, that low voltage distribution uh, system. Uh, that is under uh, uh, state regulation as well. Uh, And then I talked earlier, um, siting of power plants, siting of transmission line. We're going to talk about that a little later, but that's uh, under state jurisdiction uh, almost exclusively. Um, And then, of course, resource planning is very important to remember is under state jurisdiction. Uh, What types of generation um, utilities are going to use to serve customers, uh, that is all decided by state commissions. Um, If you were to to take Laura's earlier slide, I think it was slide seven, you could, in theory, draw a nice line in that system diagram she had there between federal and state jurisdiction. Um, In this theoretical environment, you could do that. In the real world, particularly as the grid has expanded uh, and gotten much smarter, that line is much more difficult to draw. So when we talk about regulation of transmission, it's, it's a it's a pretty complex hodgepodge of a number of different federal, state, and local entities. Um, and there's a number of broad sets of issues and sort of categories of issues that are, that are regulated. Rate-making, uh, operations, so think of allocating that capacity on the transmission line out to different users, how service is scheduled, that's kind of all in the operations. Uh, planning of expansion and upgrades, which we've talked about already and I'll talk about a little bit more. Uh, siting and reliability. But what this is all focused on at the end of the day is ensuring a safe, reliable, and economically efficient transmission grid. And that transmission grid, as we talked about a little bit already as well, is really, um, it does a number of things, obviously, in addition to just getting power uh, to you and me Um, And really, it's become the platform for wholesale competition. Uh, Congress has had a consistent policy of supporting wholesale competition in electricity. Uh, FERC has as well. And that transmission grid is really the platform for that. As Judy talked about, it's the highway uh, by which that competition happens. Um, When you're thinking about who regulates the transmission grid, um, you've got to, uh, one of the things you've got to take into account is who owns that particular piece of transmission equipment. And the ownership of the transmission grid is fragmented among thousands of entities. Uh, about two-thirds of those entities are public utilities, uh, as defined by the Federal Power Act, essentially investor-owned companies that, operate, um, that own and, op- and potentially operate transmission as well. Um, those folks are regulated by the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. Um, But about a third of that transmission grid is owned by publicly owned entities. Um, Think municipal utilities owned by a city, uh, a cooperative owned by its members. Um, Those folks are generally not regulated by the Federal Energy uh, Regulatory Commission, subject to some exceptions about how they get their financing and other things, but generally not regulated. It's also important to um, remember, um, and we'll talk about this again a little bit later, um, independent regional system operators, as we talked about earlier, operate about two-thirds of the country's grid. Um, Those independent operators are also subject to FERC jurisdiction. Uh, And if you are otherwise not subject to FERC jurisdiction, but you turn your facilities over to one of these independent operators, uh, they become subject to federal regulation um, on that basis. So uh, there's a number. It's not just FERC regulating the transmission grid. There's a number of entities. I'm going to talk a lot about um, what FERC does in a minute. Um, The Department of Energy has a role here as well. Less regulatory and more policy, data collection, uh, setting broader policy, and supporting research and development. The Department of Agriculture and the Forest Service, Department of Interior, uh, they will uh, have some responsibility for siting on federal lands. And I think some later speakers will talk about that. Uh, But So federal agencies are involved in that way, too. And that's very important in the West, in particular, where there's a lot of federal lands. Uh, And finally, there are federally owned utilities. The Bonneville Power Administration and the Tennessee Valley Authority are two of the best examples, uh, most known examples. Uh, they are subject. They are now subject to regulation directly by FERC, uh, and they are generally subject to specific statutory schemes by which they were created. So the Northwest Power Act uh, or the Tennessee um, Tennessee Valley Act. I can't remember the exact name of it. Um, govern their operations, um, and so certainly there's a lot of interaction between FERC regulation and what they do, uh, but they are not regulated directly by FERC. So let's get into a little more of the specifics of what FERC does. Under the Federal Power Act, Section 205 of the Federal Power Act, FERC regulates the rates, terms and conditions of transmission service. Uh, so what does that mean? That's everything from obviously what folks are paying to use the grid, what owners of the grid are charging uh, for that use, um, down to um, some other things we'll talk about in a minute, but terms and conditions of service, uh, how they govern, how they provide service to others, under what terms, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, rate making is obviously sort of the bread and butter of what a regulatory agency does in the energy, uh, in the electricity arena and um, the basic statutory standard by which FERC judges rates is whether they are just and reasonable what does that mean right, well it's a pretty malleable standard um, that's subject to a lot of interpretation over time, but it's generally been driven by the embedded cost what did it cost to develop that system um, we call it cost-based rate making. Uh, and generally, what happens is the utility um, establishes a revenue requirement. What money does it need to earn to both earn back its investment and earn a rate of return? And so if you try to break that down real simply, it turns into those four boxes on the bottom. The expenses to continue to operate and maintain that particular asset, the return on the investment, which I'll talk about in a minute, and of course, the return of the investment. Um, what did it cost you to build that uh, facility? Uh, you're allowed to recover a certain amount of that cost every year in rates over some useful life of the facility, 20, 30, maybe 40 years. Um, that return on piece is particularly important and is becoming more important recently. Um, that's the return on equity. It's essentially, you can think about it as the profit that the utility is allowed to earn uh, for, uh, in in return for building this facility and making it available for public use. Um, it's based on Essentially, it's based on what do you need to attract capital from investors and to cover service on debt or money that you borrowed in order to build that facility. Um, and there's no right answer. That just and reasonable standard is pretty broad. Um, and there's a number of rates that can be just and reasonable. There's no single right answer. And it's really a range. It's determined by complex financial analysis. It looks at things like bond yields, um, the treasury yields um, stock prices generally in the industry comparison of one utility to another, comparison of utilities to other uh, similar industries um, and it's become increasingly important as um, financial conditions have changed so dramatically in the country over the last seven or eight years this has become a lot harder to do um, so there's a number of uh, pending cases before FERC addressing that issue right now Moving sort of to that terms and conditions of service piece and away from rate making, FERC um, authority over this is really based around a principle of open access. And it's a key part, this open access principle, principle I'm going to talk about is a key part of the overall effort um, by Congress as well as the commission to promote wholesale competition uh, in, um, in electricity. And essentially what the commission decided in a landmark order called Order Number 888 in 1996 is that it needed to open up this grid to competition under fair and reasonable terms. And the basic principle of that is that you've got to treat others as you treat yourself. In 1996, when that was passed, pretty much the entire transmission grid was owned and operated by by vertically integrated investor-owned utilities. And so they controlled access to those grids, controlled access to that platform competition, they could favor their own generation. And so the commission adopted rules to ensure non-discriminatory access by generators that were seeking to access the market. Um, It created open access rules and principles that every jurisdictional entity has to follow. And in fact, they were required to um, file a uh, generic tariff that governed their operations, uh, and that dictates how they were going to provide open access to anyone uh, who wants access to their lines. Um, But again, just think about it as you have to treat others as you treat yourself. in fact, utilities that own transmission have to take service under that tariff, just like every other customer. Um, Open access has evolved over the years, and what we think of as key to open access. Originally, it was uh, terms and conditions of buying service on that transmission grid. Uh, Eventually, it came to include interconnection rules. what rules and charges can a utility place on a generator for the privilege of interconnecting to the grid? Um, and more recently, as we'll talk about, as Judy talked about earlier, and I'll talk about it in a minute, it's come to incorporate transmission planning. Um, what are the, the terms by which utilities go and plan their transmission grids? That's really kind of just another principle of open access as well. Um, FERC also adopts and enforces reliability standards um, that NERC, as uh, Laura talked about earlier, creates. That's a a unique and special provision of the Federal Power Act. It's Section 215 of the Federal Power Act. Um, There's an industry stakeholder process that's conducted by NERC. NERC is considered the electric reliability organization under that law. Um, FERC approves or disapproves those standards, but does not write them. Uh, NERC writes those standards through an industry uh, stakeholder process. And I believe that will be the subject of a future briefing that Jim's working on. We talked a little about regional operators. Um, RTOs and ISOs, you'll hear a lot about them. They cover two-thirds of the country, PJANs, the uh, RTO uh, that, that covers this region. Um, and they were created, they're voluntary. FERCUS does not require them, but has um, strongly encouraged them since order uh, EE particularly since order number 2000. Um, and really what they do is ensure independent operation of the grid. So I talked earlier about um, these, the grid used to be largely operated by um, vertically integrated investor-owned utilities, who also held the generation and control access. Well, one way that you can kind of break down that wall is to have uh, the grid operated by an independent third party that's not affiliated or associated in any way with any participant in the market. Uh, and so FERC encouraged those over the years to facilitate more competition. Um, And as I said, they've been created in about two-thirds of the country. uh, East, Northeast, Midwest, and California, uh, principally. If you you were to look at a map, and I keep forgetting to put the map in my slides. Uh, But they do a number of things, as this slide talks about. They they do all the planning and operation of the grid. Um, Those utilities still own the grid assets, but they turn the entirety of the operational control over to that RTO or ISO. Uh, And after Order 2000, Uh, those entities not only uh, operated the grid, they began to operate wholesale markets uh, for electricity as well, and conducted that security-constrained economic dispatch that Laura talked about on a regional level uh, based on bids by generators to ensure that the most economic resources were being used uh, to satisfy demand. And one of the things that um, we talked about earlier is that um, those markets are very, very transparent. And so they've provided a great deal of transparency into um, w- what generators are being used to satisfy demand and what their costs are over time. And that's provided a lot of transparency uh, to know where where congestion is on the grid and other things. And we could talk about those details as we move on. So I'm going to talk a little bit about Order 1000 to close out, which a lot of you have probably heard about. It's Perk's recent uh landmark rulemaking on uh, transmission planning and cost allocation. Um, Order 88, as I mentioned, was kind of that first foray into open access. Um, required that, as I mentioned before, that um, the grid be open to access by third-party generators and others. Um, required utilities to unbundle their service. Uh, previously, there was a, a strictly a bundled rate. You saw one rate, it included transmission distribution and uh, the wholesale energy component. That was unbundled after Order 88 and all um, stated separately. Um, Order 890 was an update to Order 888 that was issued in 2007. And that was when FERC first decided that the open access requirements in the course of updating those required that there be more transparency into how the grid was planned, so that customers, wholesale customers, could have some input and insight into how the grid is planned and how future expansions would be decided, where, where they would go, and where they're needed. Uh, and so in Order 890, FERC adopted um, local and regional planning requirements. Order 1000, in large measure, updated those uh, based on a few years of experience under Order 890 and just the continued changing nature of the grid in the last 10 years. Uh, The the first set of requirements under Order 1000 is that jurisdictional, for jurisdictional utilities, plan on a regional basis with their neighbors. So if you think historically about the grid, it was originally planned at a very local level. Individual, vertically integrated, investor-owned utilities planning to meet their own needs, get their own generation to their own roads. Over time, that has expanded, and so they're relying on third-party generators, independent generators. They're relying on resources that are further and further away from their own loads, um, and that's required a broader look at transmission planning. Uh, the Commission's Order 90 required that that um, utilities have a have an in-depth local planning process. Have the how that process is conducted, where there are opportunities for stakeholders, customers to participate in that process. Uh, laid out uh, in their tariffs that are on file with the commission, and also that they publish a local transmission plan. 890 also requires some kind of softer regional planning requirements, and what Ordering 1000 did was make those planning requirements more explicit. So, regional transmission planning, um, the terms by which that is done, all have to be on a file tariff with FERC, um, and they have to result in in a plan, in a published regional transmission plan uh, that identifies projects that can meet regional needs on a more cost i have to get these words right—on a more efficient or cost-effective basis than those locally planned alternatives. So it's a requirement that you get with your neighbors and figure out what the most economic solution is to your regional transmission needs. We talked a little bit about this already, but another key area that FERC addressed in Order 1000 was planning for public policy requirements. Those RPS standards that Judy talked about driving the need for new transmission is is the best example of a public policy requirement that FERC required that that utilities plan for. Um, What the commission had heard over time was that there really wasn't a home in the planning processes that are conducted for those kinds of transmission needs. There's obviously a home for reliability-based transmission planning that's been done since the dawn of time. There's a home for economic transition planning, which is to try to resolve constraints, move more economic power uh, to loads. Um, Those all had a home. But planning for accessing resources to satisfy a renewable portfolio standard, for example, or uh, to address environmental regulations was not something that had a neat fit into uh, the transition planning process. And so FERC required that um, there be rules in place and in tariffs uh, that would that would establish processes to plan for those kind of those kind of transmission needs. Uh, there were also a set of interregional planning requirements, um, and that's really getting beyond your your region. So the example of a region, let's call New England a region, six states. Um, there are region for planning purposes under Order 1000. Um, there are also interregional requirements in that rule that also require them. Together with their neighboring regions, so New York, PJM, anyone they're interconnected to on, a re- on an interregional basis, to take a look at those regional plans and figure out if there are more cost-effective or efficient solutions at the inter-regional level that could be built uh, to replace those. One of the drivers of that is really um, one of the places where there's still a lot of economic efficiency in the grid is those what we call seams between uh, regions, uh, so we've got RTOs have been built, they've been expanded. They've captured a great deal of efficiency in the system. But those seams between the two markets um, are where we lose some of those efficiencies. And so um, interregional planning can really help with that. So the commission um, adopted some requirements in that regard as well. In terms of cost allocation, obviously this is where the rubber meets the road, right? Who pays for that transmission once you build it? Um, This is the hardest part, in my opinion, of transmission, is deciding who pays, how much they pay, and when they pay. And Order 1000 tried to to address this problem um, by adopting regional cost allocation requirements uh, for those regional planning processes. And essentially what it requires is that each region have on file a method for allocating the costs of new regional transmission projects. Uh, One of the problems that FERC saw was that there was no upfront certainty about how costs would be shared for transmission facilities once they were built. And so the idea here is to get that upfront certainty uh, to to provide some measure of certainty to investors and developers of transmission. Um, As with much of Order 1000, um, FERC did not dictate any one-size-fits-all approach to cost allocation. Instead, it laid out six relatively broad principles um, that any regional cost allocation method had to satisfy. Uh, and then regions came in on compliance uh, with with a method that they believed would satisfy those. And um, the principles, we could go into them in detail, but, but sort of the basic requirement of those principles is that those who benefit from a transmission facility must share in their costs, and those who do not benefit may not be assigned any costs. Um, this is a what the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals is called the roughly commensurate standard. Um, costs have to be allocated roughly commensurate with benefits. It doesn't have to be dollar for dollar. You don't have to pay $1 for every dollar of benefit you get. But cost allocation methods have to roughly approximate the benefits uh, that individual pieces of the system, classes of customers, etc., cetera, uh, receive from that transmission line. You know, as Judy talked about, that there's a lot of benefits to transmission. Some are easier to quantify than others. And that's one of the, the developing areas uh, that, that the commission's still looking at, that the industry's still looking at, is how do you quantify those benefits? Because the, uh, the better you can quantify those benefits, the better you can get agreement on them, the easier cost allocation becomes. There were also a set of non-incumbent transmission developer reforms. Uh, essentially, what this, these were trying to do um, is break down barriers to competition from non-traditional entities who want to come in and build transmission transmissions historically been built by um, the, the traditional utilities that have served load um, you know for for decades um, they've traditionally developed footprints by which they develop transmission largely growing out of um, their service territories their retail service territories um, and many tariffs around the country had, Um, in place barriers to allow non-traditional new transmission developers, we call them non-incumbents, from participating in that process. And so um, the commission required that um, certain of these barriers be broken down, particularly um, a set of tariff requirements called rights of first refusal, which essentially gave existing transmission owners the, the absolute right to build facilities in their region. Uh, the commission required uh, many reforms uh, to get at this area, and again, to promote competition and transmission development, uh, with the idea that more transmission, more competition, uh, in bringing solutions to the regional planning process, uh, will result in more cost-efficient, effective alternatives. So, FERC is right now in the middle of a, a pretty deep um, compliance process on Order 1000. Um, all compliance filings have been made or made over the course of about 12 to, to 18 months uh, since the rule was issued in 2011. Um, the commission has issued initial rulings. They were filed in two batches. Um, regional um, uh, complying with the regional requirements of the rule, the regional planning requirements was one set, and the interregional requirements was a second set. So. The Commission has issued orders on all of the regional filings that have been made, initial orders. Um, those orders all require the regions, in some measure, to do some more work. And so regions have filed the second round of compliance filings. Those are pending before the Commission now. And um, inter-regional compliance filings have been made as well. The Commission has yet to act on uh, initial orders there. Um, uh, and so that will be one of the next things the Commission does as well, is, is begin to roll on those inter-regional compliance filings. Uh, one last thing I'll note on Order 1000. Last Thursday, the DC Circuit Court of Appeals heard an oral argument on challenges to Order 1000 from a number of entities. Um, there were kind of four broad sets of challenges that the court was looking at. Um, the Commission's uh, authority under the Federal Power Act to um, establish rules or requirements for transmission planning is an issue. Um, obviously, the cost allocation determinations were controversial, and so, so that's at issue in the appeal as well. Um, the role of states in these processes and, and the jurisdictional lines between the federal and state government in these planning processes uh, is at issue. Um, and finally, those non incumbent developer reforms that I talked about are at issue as well. And likely the court will rule um, this, I, think, I believe, this fall. Just real quick, FERC has a lot of other authorities that touch indirectly on the transmission grid, obviously. FERC um, monitors energy markets um, and pursues market manipulation where it finds it. Um, we also have authority to approve mergers and acquisitions made by public utilities. Um, oversees issuances of securities by public utilities. Um, we resolve disputes among market participants. We, um, entities can file complaints with us uh, if they believe something is uh, not just and reasonable. Um, and then again, we have that very limited backstop siting authority that I talked about earlier. Um, and I think that will be discussed a little bit later. But um, it's essentially a role behind the state, so a primary role. Um, and there's a number of hurdles uh, to FERC actually exercising that. Um, and those hurdles have gotten much higher over the years. Lastly, I'll let you read this on the time your own, because I think I'm running out of time. But um, this is just a little more information on some of the, the things that state commissions do as well. Um, as I mentioned, as the grids become more interconnected uh, and become much bigger, that line between federal and state jurisdiction has gotten a little bit more difficult to determine. So at FERC, we constantly work with state regulators um, and vice versa um, uh, to try to keep lines of communication open and avoid jurisdictional disputes where we can. But sometimes they still happen. So that's a quick rundown, and I'll
5: be happy to answer questions. Thanks. So we've been going at it for a little bit more than an hour now, and I starting to see some heavy eyelids out there. So if you all want to stand up and stretch for a quick minute, that's, that's perfectly fine. No takers? Anybody? So, so my name is Kevin Reeves. I'm a managing director with AEP, and AEP is a large investor-owned uh, company. We're based in Columbus, Ohio. We serve approximately 5 million customers in 11 states, and so that's the, uh, the commercial for, for AEP. So we will, we will move on. So regional transmission organizations and independent system operators uh, manage organized markets throughout the country. Uh, the RTOs and ISOs um, were created by regional stakeholders uh, in response to FERC order 888, which was issued in 1996, and FERC order 2000, which was issued in 2000. So never let me say that birth doesn't have a sense of humor. Uh, among the many functions of the RTOs, they exist to do the following functions that are outlined on the slide, and I will consult your intelligence by reading the slide to you. And I will give you a couple minutes to read it. All right, so the grid in North America consists of three interconnections, uh, and they operate largely independent of one another. So that means that the ability to move large-scale amounts of power between each interconnection is, is largely loaded. So as an earlier speaker had said, there's, there's a west interconnection, which is essentially the area west of the Rocky Mountains. There's an east interconnection, which is essentially the area east of the Rocky Mountains. And then Texas, or at least 80% of Texas, is an in entity unto itself. Um, in addition to the eight NERC regions uh, that, that are shown in the slide, I'm sorry, in addition to the three interconnections, there are eight NERC regions, and the NERC regions are charged with maintaining reliability in the region, they don't operate in markets. Uh, it, it's important to distinguish between NERC regions and RTOs. So RTOs are voluntary. NERC regions are mandatory, and NERC regions predate the formation of RTOs. So because RTOs are voluntary, memberships can shift over time. So for example, there's a, there's a utility not far from where we are called First Energy. First Energy used to be part of MISO. They decided they didn't like MISO, so then they moved to PJM. And that's perfectly fine because membership in RTOs, uh, it, it is voluntary. Um, RTO excuse me, um, the NERC regions, though, are standard or static. And so you look at, take the state of Michigan, for example, uh, Michigan, most of Michigan's geography is actually located within MISO, but the NERP region that Michigan is assigned to is actually covers most of the geography PJM. So there can be a little bit of an overlap just due to some of the you know, idiosyncrasies of, of how those regions were set up. So as you can see from this map, there are significant parts of North America that are not part of an RTO. And this speaks to the voluntary nature of RTOs, where it's clear that in many parts of the country, and I will leave it to you, up to you to draw your conclusions as to why. But in many parts of the country, it's clear that the benefits of, of joining an RTO are not perceived to be worth the costs, whatever those costs may be. So, whatever your goal is from a from a policy standpoint, whether you want to increase the market share of renewable energy resources uh, such as wind and solar, if, if you want to increase our country's energy, energy security by developing shale plays in the continental United States, or if you want to ensure grid stability in you know, the wake of an estimated thirty to 40,000 megawatts of coal retirements, a robust transmission system and, and significant transmission investment is required you know, to achieve any and all of these objectives. So if you look across the different RTOs uh, within the country, you'll find that while they all perform similar functions, they each go about their business in very different ways. And for example, to take two, diff- two very different RTOs, ERCOT and PJM. Power plants in ERCOT only get paid when they generate electricity. You have know, no, no generation of electricity, no revenue. In PJM, power plants receive what's called a capacity payment from the RTO for their ability to generate electricity when needed. In addition to the revenue they receive when they generate electricity, RTOs allow for more effective grid management by providing a central clearinghouse for transmission and generation transactions. Uh, And they also allocate transmission rights in managed day ahead and real time markets. However, market participants are still free to negotiate bilateral contracts. That's just an arms length contract from party A to party B uh, with one another as their business needs dictate. And as I've mentioned before, participation in RTOs is voluntary. However, FERC provides incentives to encourage membership at RTOs. So the jurisdiction of FERC is limited only to public utilities or investor-owned utilities like like the one I work for, American Electric Power. Fully one-third of transmission within the United States is not subject to FERC jurisdiction. Um, Transmission facilities that are owned by public power entities, such as uh, Bible Power Administration, Tennessee Valley Authority. Uh, most major cooperatives in most utilities within Texas are not regulated by FERC. Once you get outside of the realm of RTOs and ISOs, FERC's ability to promote the coordinated enlargement of the interconnected grid is significantly weaker uh, than it is within the RTOs and ISOs because FERC policies do not apply to all the others of that interconnected system. So, with the Energy Policy Act of 2005, FERC was tasked with overseeing the reliability of the nation's electric transmission grid, as if they didn't already have enough to do. One of the ways that FERC has gone about trying to ensure a more robust transmission system is through its insistence on a regional approach to transmission planning. Regional transmission planning is one of the mechanisms through which relatively remote resources, such as a, a wind generation facility in Iowa, gets to serve distant load in Minneapolis, St. Paul, or Chicago, for example. So understanding the regional transmission process is integral to understanding how transmission projects are analyzed, selected, and paid for. So a potential project is submitted to the RTO for modeling to evaluate the impact of the regional transmission system and to include the project's cost and benefits. So if the data shows that the project is beneficial, based on the RTO's established cost benefit criteria, it's accepted or it's approved. Projects that are approved by the RTO are eligible for cost recovery according to each RTO's established methodology. So each RTO is free to establish its own methodology for, for cost recovery. Projects may proceed outside of the RTO planning process, but cost recovery through the RTO would in that case not be available. And I, wanted to, I want to be clear and draw a distinction between cost allocation and cost recovery. Cost recovery from regional transmission projects is determined by FERC in accordance with its transmission formula rates. Cost allocation is the methodology to assign cost to ratepayers. For example, in, in SPP, for transmission projects that are less than 100 kV, and forgive me for using the jargon, kV is just a kilobolt. Um, the costs are allocated entirely to load, to the load in the zone where the transmission is built. For projects between 100 and 300 KB, costs are allocated one third to the load in the zone, and two thirds of that cost is socialized across all SVP ratepayers. And then for projects above 300 KB, 100% of the costs are socialized to SVP ratepayers. Each RTO approaches cost allocation in a slightly different manner, each in its own way trying to strike the proper balance of cost allocation. So if you look at the transmission map from the not-too-distant past, most of the extra-high-voltage lines, say 345 kV and above, will be clustered along the lines of where population is centered, you know, along the coasts, pockets of the Midwest and Texas. And that's because historically, individual utilities built transmission to meet their individual needs only, without really taking any consideration any regional requirements. The transmission map in the not-too-distant future will have uh, extra high-voltage uh, transmission lines in places that they never would have been otherwise. West Texas, um, SVP, the Upper Great Plains portion of, of MISO. And, and this is due in large part to the regional transmission planning process. This regional planning process allows for the large-scale integration of renewable energy into our generation resource portfolio. It will also allow for TV grid reliability as natural gas fire generation Ultimately displaces a significant portion of our coal-fired generation. Regional planning and related cost allocations expanding beyond RTOs and ISOs as a result of First Order One Thousand. Entities that are not in RTOs will have to join a transmission planning region, so kind of an RTO light. Um, and each planning region has to include more than one utility. Certainty regarding cost allocation and cost recovery of transmission investments are critical for grid expansion. Not surprisingly, cost allocation is extremely challenging, given the complex and highly interconnected nature of the bulk power system and and, and the existing regulatory framework. Not to mention that virtual transmission development and and other opportunities which which can transcend regions. So, Over the course of this presentation, I mentioned both bilateral and organized markets, and I would be remiss if I didn't spend a minute to at least give you a better sense of each. A bilateral contract is simply, as I mentioned earlier, a contract where a buyer and seller negotiate directly and sign a two-party agreement to trade electric power. Outside of the RTOs, and that's mainly the Southeast, the Upper Great Plains, and the West, that's not including California. Wholesale power trades only occur through bilateral contracts, because those are the areas that don't have RTOs. Now, within RTOs and ISOs, there are both bilateral markets and organized markets that pool all sellers and buyers. In most RTOs, this organized market entails a market clearing price for energy that changes every 15 minutes based on supply and demand balance at that time. In the RTOs, first oversight of transmission is stronger because all transmission owners follow the RTO's transmission policies, which have been approved by the Commission. Regional transmission planning is without a doubt challenging, but compared to implementing a regional transmission plan, the planning may be the easy part. Siting of transmission lines is a long, arduous process that is likely to have very strong localized opposition. And while the Energy Policy Act of 2005 gave FERC limited, limited siting authority in DOE-designated areas, the fact of the matter is that the siting of transmission lines is still very much a local issue that comes with a myriad of potential obstacles which have to be successfully navigated. The other major obstacle to carrying out a regional transmission plan is determining who's going to pay for it. FERC Board 1000 established six key principles of regional and interregional cost allocation. And these principles are that cost allocation must be roughly commensurate with estimated benefits. No costs should be allocated to those who receive no benefit. Costs can only be assigned to regions where the facility is located. There has to be a transparent and documented process for cost allocation. Different cost allocation methodologies are perfectly fine for different types of facilities, and if used, and if the cost benefit ratio is used, that cost benefit ratio should not exceed 1.25 to one. Interregional transmission planning between RTOs is the next frontier, and it's probably a subject for for another day. So I think with that, I will just say thank you very much. AB looks forward to the process of continuing to work with stakeholders and for going forward. Thank you very much.
6: Not to take anything away from our fellow speakers, if we don't cite the transmission line, whatever they have to say is meaningless. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> If you don't have a line to decide, site, we don't have to worry about the power going through the line. Site selection is, you know, I'd like to say it's a science, but it's really not. It's an odd. And it's putting together a bunch of different factors involving the human and and the the built environment and and the human environment and the ecological environment. And these things need to be blended along with the engineering factors and the costs. And and there is no such thing as a a one size shoe fits all. Each siting study, each particular area will have its own significance in terms of the local physiography, the local environment, and the population. And this is becoming more and more important in terms of siting. We've talked about the reasons in terms of trying to connect renewables, new renewables, these are generally involving longer lines, lines that are as much as six, 700 miles long from major wind centers or solar centers. Also, reliability in terms of trying to solve reliability problems by additional transmission reinforcement of the grid involves also siting. So what are we doing in, in, in site selection? We're looking at trying to connect a series of points, usually you know, point A to point B. And what we're doing is we want to understand what's happening in that area. We want to identify, are there any opportunities that would simplify the siting? Could we parallel existing facilities, such as existing transmission lines, or roadways, or gas pipelines, or or highways, or whatever, from that point of view? What kind of alternatives do exist out there in that area to get from point A to point B? Uh, What are the impacts of each of those alternatives? And from that, we would go to identify a proposed route. Now, I put this up there. And on the y-axis, going up and down is the amount of relative, amount of relative effort. And on the x-axis across the bottom is time. And you can see all these different areas that are involved in the whole transmission project. Uh, route selection, you see the term NEPA up there, National Environmental Policy Act. That would be involved if we're crossing or affecting federal lands or federal permitting. Uh, NEPA could be involved, National Environmental Policy Act, right away, actually acquiring the land. Uh, NEPA, in terms of the actual permitting, and we look at NEPA uh, and part of the siting because what we try to do is we try to simplify our siting approach. We try to avoid federal lands so that is part of the actual site selection process but when we get into the permitting if we're involved in that we have to deal with NEPA uh, if we're on federal lands or again if we're involved in a federal uh, permitting action and dan will talk more about that then we have the engineering aspects the construction management access uh, uh, construction management aspects can we get into the transmission to build it one of the keys is access roads that turns out to be a real major consideration when you're building new transmission in what I would call green areas where you have no prior access or no prior right of ways existing. Can, can you build the access roads? Can you get around that bend? Can you move the equipment in? Uh, public involvement. You notice how high that goes at the beginning. And that really varies from project to project in terms of how people consider and how they work in terms of public involvement. Are we out in the rural areas? Are we more towards an urban area? You know, one of the things to think about is this whole uh, closing of coal plants. Coal plants that were built tens of years ago were built in urban environments. With the closing of these coal plants, we now have to redo the transmission system to bring in power to those areas. So now we're talking about uh, transmission going into urbanized areas, uh, which involves a lot in terms of human impact. Uh, and. Uh, Public involvement is a key concern for that particular process. The yellow line stands for the completion of a siting study, and I'll just give you some ranges. I've seen siting studies six months to two and three years. Uh, The green line is actual submission to a state public utility commission, and generally the period between the yellow and the green takes about a year, uh, six months to a year to prepare those documents to a year and a half depending if you're talking about possibly multiple states. And then the blue line represents uh, authorization by a state public utility commission to go forward with construction. And that's probably a year to two years as well. But that doesn't mean you have your permits. You first still also have to get your permits through this process. And Dan, as as I said, we'll talk about that. The red line on the right is the energizing the line So if you add this all up, uh, probably one of the fastest projects I ever worked on was a project here that went from southwest Pennsylvania uh, through West Virginia into Virginia called the Trail Project that was completed several years ago. And we completed that project in three months under five. Four, Four months, four years, nine months. But at the same time, there have been other projects, one down in Virginia, West Virginia, Virginia, that AEP worked on that I think was about 14 years. So there's quite a variation in terms of the time frame. So the routing process. Initially, we developed very broad level uh, routing guidelines. We want to avoid national parks. We want to avoid urbanized areas. Uh, And as we go through the process, we're going to develop more detailed guidelines as we go through and by the way, I would mention I normally give a two-day course on sighting which we're going to we're converting to ten minutes. So, just, so understand that part. But we're developing specific alignments, and you can see the spaghetti kind of the spaghetti lines through there. And we're actually developing potential routes, and from these potential routes, we'll actually develop what we call alternative routes, which any one of which could solve the problem. But then we look in terms of. Uh, which would be the best, and that would meet all the different criteria involved. This is one of the issues, particularly for Back East, and I threw this up. This is a partial map of the Appalachian Trail that runs from Maine to Georgia, 1,400 miles long, controlled by the national park system. If you have a utility or you want to build a transmission line in eastern United States and you want to get over to the eastern part of your state, you will cross the Appalachian Trail which triggers a National Environmental Policy Act. Now, on a siting point of view, so it's really difficult to avoid it for utilities such as Dominion or uh, New Jersey Power, uh, Public Service Electric Gas, or Pennsylvania Power and Light, or other utilities to avoid it. But what we try to do when we're siting, we try to take a look at existing crossings. What existing crossings on the athletic training trail there? Are there older crossings that such, like, for example, there's a project up in New Jersey that was in the news quite a bit and actually is in construction now called Susquehanna-Roseland, about 150-mile project, and that's actually crossing the Delaware Water Gap National Recreation Area. There we identified a crossing that was 92 years old, uh, an existing transmission line 92 years old that needs to be rebuilt no matter what for reliability as a crossing point. However, there's a case in point that where that project, because we needed fit, an existing right of way existed, but for nine tenths of a mile we needed another 50 foot of right of way. We got pushed into the National Environmental Policy Act and had an EIS, had an environmental impact statement had to be created. To make a long story short, that project's running about eight years and it should be completed this next year. Uh, in reality, if we didn't get pushed into an uh, into an EIS. Uh, we would have been completed within five years. Uh, we already had state approvals and permits and everything else would have been completed. And I'm raising this to give you an idea of the timing and how we approach siting for, for, for uh, things like this where you can avoid it. And what we try to do is to avoid these kinds of uh, things that would lead to new uh, actions, that would lead to uh, increased environmental impact, et cetera. So these are just a list of guidelines, and it's in the handout that you have, so I'm not going to bore, bore you with it. But generally, we look at the large constraints at a, at a regional level, and then we start honing in with smaller constraints. So we actually get on the ground, and we actually look for houses. We want to stay away from houses. We want to stay away from schools. And that's our intention to try and do those things. So actually, this is a preference for citing and for how we we look in terms of how we want to site our lines. Our first preference is to upgrade a double an existing line, transmission line. Secondly, we would try to parallel an existing line. Thirdly, we try to look at paralleling roads, railroads, and pipelines. And our last alternative is trying to develop what we call greenfield solutions, where there are no other linear features that we can work with and to ameliorate big impact. Uh, here's an example out in West Virginia. This is actually the trail project. And you can see the existing line. In this area, we uh, paralleled. And the reason I put this up is, I mean, there's not much out here. But imagine if you were in more of an, uh, of an area that had much more uh, people. And they were living next to this existing transmission line. And then all of a sudden, you go to build it. And they've lost the part of their backyard. Because most people consider these things part of their backyard. So, paralleling an existing transmission line is not necessarily a panacea. I think it really depends in terms of what else is there and and the possible human impact. The other key part of this is eminent domain. If you can't acquire the property, everything else is meaningless. And that kind of varies from state to state. You need to get the public utility uh, commission approval before you can go forward with an eminent domain. Uh, there are some states, such as Delaware, that do not have eminent domain. So this, you have to buy the property, and if you can't buy the property, you can't build the project. And at that point, I think it's on turning over to permanent.
7: Great! Thanks a lot, everybody, for sticking with us and. Um, in the interest of trying to maintain some time for questions, I'll try and be as brief as I can. My name is Dan Veland. I'm the director of electric transmission at e and like Jack, do a lot of siting and permitting work. And so I appreciate the opportunity to share our experience with you today. Um, so what I plan to talk through today, uh, a lot of it's already been said, so I'll be able to, to move through a lot of what I was going to talk about. But really what I'll focus on is uh, regulatory authority surrounding permitting, and then uh, what that translates into in terms of challenges and opportunities uh, with particular focus on uh, recent trends and developments. So background, a lot of this has already been talked about. Uh, there are a lot of key drivers to building new transmission. Um, and one of the um, evolving challenges for permitting that infrastructure is the lack of a continuous federal authority. Um, This could be contrasted with uh, the Natural Gas Pipeline Infrastructure Network that has the Natural Gas Act um, to use as a permitting framework, and that's a very consistent, known entity. It's it's a known regulatory environment um, that pipelines can move through. There's no equivalent of that in electric transmission. So uh, what that translates into at the end of the day is that Um, as as time has gone on as we've come into the present it's taken more and more time to permit transmission lines, particularly the large interstate projects that uh, Jack was referring to so in getting to authority a lot of this has been talked about but really at the federal level the the authority is is really piecemeal, it's based on what's called a, a federal nexus so that, and that's determined on a project by project basis so if your project Closes across federal lands, then that would involve resource management agencies. And I have a list of some of the um, federal nexus uh, up there, along with uh, relevant agencies. But one of the key things to also note is that federal authority, in terms of permitting, does not translate necessarily into siting authority. So for example, if there were an international border crossing the Department of Energy has federal authority to issue a presidential permit, but they have no authority to cite a transmission line. And uh, like Jeff talked about, a lot of that citing authority occurs at the state. Um, but even at the state level, that's a challenge, because as you can see with this map here, uh, the areas in blue are states with varying levels of siting authority. So there are roughly 75 states with some type of siting authority or process, but they're all different. And, and the states in white... Our areas with no uh, siting process so if you're proposing a line in Colorado you're going to be doing your your permitting at a county by county level um, and so you know what that um, results in is basically a very um, fragmented disjointed regulatory environment um, that is just different on every project and so that um, so that disjointed um, process really, um, is the result of having to deal with permitting at a local, state, and federal level. And so even though it is complex in that environment, the actual permitting itself is a very simple process. Um, whether you're permitting at the local level, state, or federal level, the permitting process is very straightforward. It's, it's essentially just a few steps. Uh, pre-application process, and a lot of that is what Jack talked about with citing public involvement, those types of activities. And then a developer or a utility will file an application. An agency will review it and make a decision. What's what's the problem? (laughs) Easy. Um, Well, it's an easy process, but it takes uh, an extraordinary amount of time and uh, has a a large degree of complexity to it. And and that complexity really is one of the key challenges, that there is a lack of standardization and uh, essentially regulatory certainty. Uh, some of the other challenges to permitting I've listed up there, but uh, a big one is is agency resources and staffing. And the agencies need to review these applications, and, and with budget cuts and, um, and staffing levels, that can be that can be quite a challenge. Um, the technical complexity of the subject matter is also a, a key component of that. Um, but at, at the end of the day, what these challenges and, and complexities translate into. Is um, impact on schedule, and so uh, the more challenges that, uh, you come up against, and the more difficulties you have, the longer it's going to take to permit your line. So, you know, Jack had referred to Susquehanna Roseland. I have a, a sample project schedule up here for the Gateway West project, and it's uh, it's fairly similar. Um, and I'm just using it as a as a case study here. Uh, the Gateway West project is a one of the large high voltage western um, transmission projects that runs roughly 1,000 miles across three Western states. And um, it, it has been uh, formally fast-tracked through the Department of Energy's rapid response transmission team, as Jack's project was, too. That, um, and uh, you know, I, I will like, well, give credit that that, that fast-tracking procedure has, has helped. But even with that, it still took over six years um, through the National Environmental Policy Act which is not a permitting process it's a, it's a prelude to the permitting process so getting through NEPA uh, is the, the precursor to going through all of your federal permits and then it's also uh, they have another five years for state and local permitting so really what you're talking about for these large and, uh, large multi-state projects is, is a five to ten year time frame which is significant um, but it's not all doom and gloom. <laughs> there are um, there are certainly opportunities that have been evolving as of late, and and most of those opportunities center around the early stages of that permitting process in the pre-filing approach. And um, really, the focus of efforts has been in public involvement, stakeholder outreach, agency consultation, basically getting out to the public earlier in the process, and and that has. Um, been facilitated also by social media and, and internet, but um, really I think the federal agencies have caught on to this and have instituted several examples of uh, streamlining initiatives, um, which I'd like to just talk about quickly here. And so the recent um, sort of in the recent past, the fast track or streamlining initiatives began in 2009 with the Department of Interior under Secretary Salazar. Um, They fast-tracked several projects, uh, both generation and transmission, across federal lands. And during that time, there was a a 9 agency memorandum of understanding signed among the various federal agencies. And that, MOU gave rise to the uh, rapid response transmission team. And uh, the Department of Energy should be given uh, a lot of credit in this realm for stepping up to the plate and providing a lot of leadership, uh, through the Rapid Response Transmission Team and other uh, federal processes. They, uh, through DOE's um, guidance, they have also floated the IIP process, what's called the Integrated Interagency Pre-Application Process. And um, essentially what the Department of Energy, through these frameworks, is trying to do is stitch together this disjointed um, framework. And it's, it's certainly a challenge. But that those are the recent developments, and those have been bolstered by a presidential executive order, along with the memorandum. Um, and it should also be noted that these um, fast-tracking initiatives are not just at the federal level; they're also occurring in in California and in New York, um, two of the places that need fast-tracking. <laughs> but. Um, uh, the governor, governor's office in New York established an energy highway initiative and, and last year as part of that initiative uh, formally announced an expedited permitting process so you know all of these initiatives um, are looking to try to recognize the challenges um, with the current state of affairs and permitting and are doing what they can but really at the end of the day um, they're limited by federal authority and that's so they're doing the best they can with with what authority they do have, but that's the that's the limiting factor. And so that's really going to be my conclusion here: is that um, it is the lack of authority that's the primary bottleneck, and what that translates into is just a, a longer time to get projects permitted. Um, and so, absent of that authority, there are opportunities in this pre-filing process, but there's certainly uh, a lot of work to do. So. Thanks a lot for driving with us today.
0: Well, you have been a fabulous audience. I'm uh, I'm uh, pleased that most of you are still here, and we will be happy to take your questions. I think, you know, you, you get the message here that, uh, that there are... Uh, there are some uh, uh, overall themes uh, uh, about uh, how the grid works on a, on a regional basis. The fact is that it is largely in interstate commerce and subject to federal regulation, except for some certain major things, including siting. As siting is very complicated, uh, it doesn't just translate into time, it translates into cost, and that translates into rates. And one of the resistance that we uh, areas of resistance we get to transmission development is who, who's going to pay, and uh, what's the impact going to be on rates. Uh, the, the only thing I would suggest is that we try to put this all in a longer-term perspective as the economy changes, as the electric industry changes. Uh, we're talking about putting facilities in the ground that are going to serve the public uh, for the next two, maybe three generations of people. Um, that means uh, 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 benefits uh, to uh, the economy for a, a long period of time, benefits to the environment in terms of access to new sources of energy. Um, uh, but uh, it is going to be uh, price sensitive, I mean there don't, there's no getting around it, but the, but the benefits are long term, and we look at this long term transmission is really a great bargain. Um, uh, questions for this uh, August panel? Yes, sir. Uh, Terry, Hill with the pasty Passes Institute. this is mind boggling to me. <laughs> put me to sleep, you know. Uh, but it, and and it's and it's basically, I think you're talking about, you know, what is. But if you look at it from the customer point of view, who's looking at it from uh, a net-zero energy house perspective and a micro-DC microgrid in a, in a city block? Because what impact does that thinking have on this whole magical system?
1: So I can talk to the efforts, and and it's coming from a lot of different places. Uh, I'm based in California, so a lot of this is coming through the California Energy Commission, rates and incentives through various public utilities commission, and it's not just California. There's New England, all, all kinds of states are, first of all, promoting energy efficiency. So that's the first piece of it is how tight can you make your energy usage. And if you look at some statistics, let me pick on the gas industry as well. Southern California gas, they have no load growth. They, 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 they are that efficient. And then you look at the developments in LED technology I and mean, imagine all those light bulbs that cannot be replaced, right? So there's all of this efficiency coming from changes in technology, from promoting um, just state by state how, how, how much more efficient can you be. The next thing we're seeing is how do we leverage things like the customer microgrids, like customer assets. And so if you look at specifically the state of California, they have a loading order. And they say, okay, energy efficiency is number one. How do we help customers deploy their resources effectively? Number two. Renewables, number three. And then the more traditional fossil fuels would be sort of number four. And so that's done as a planning region. It's done as a state, but it's not just California that has these kind of initiatives. Um, Then I'm going to talk about the microgrids because that's coming from two places. Microgrid development is coming, first of all, from the economies of being able to have behind the meter generation. So if you look at UC San Diego, they're like a laboratory, a living laboratory of cool things that you can do on a campus. They have fuel cells. They have solar panels. They have... Chiller tanks, they have all kinds of stuff that, that they're using more effectively, more efficiently, and it's become a living laboratory. The other piece that's happening is that it's coming from the need for resiliency. And so that's the next driver is to say, I can't guarantee that nothing will ever happen to my grid. I can't afford to plan for, you know, 12 tenths of the worst thing that could happen. How do I make sure that locally I'm in really good shape? And so you see a lot of these initiatives coming through the Department of Defense, for example. The Navy in San Diego is looking at some of these things. Um... And then also where you have the storm disasters, people aren't looking to say, how can I do business the way I used to? They're saying, how can I do business much more Rigorously, So I'm using not only the ability to stand alone when I need to, but I'm using a lot more smart technology. And so it's not only the smart technology in the microgrid, but for example, smart wire grid, their devices go right up on the transmission line to help you manage the system in real time, more smart, in a, in a way that's more smart. So it's coming from the, the local initiatives the ability to have technology. And then the other piece I would say are the computer algorithms to handle it. We're we're becoming more and more comfortable with the fact that we are moving to an internet of things. We are going to be big data. And and so we we don't have the command and control the way we used to. And it's the ability to leverage that and have the computer algorithms that can handle it. It's it's all coming together slowly, but, but very definitely.
0: Wow, I didn't an answer. That's great. Uh, uh, I appreciate it. You know,
6: Can the, the, I add one thing, Jim? Sure. I, I think the point that, to think about is they all still have to be connected to the grid as backup. Let me point that out. Yeah.
0: Uh, the, and we we think, I think, WIRES is, is looking at this very issue, and we, we think that there's a lot about uh, the high voltage system and the bulk power system that's very compatible with the development of these local resources that you're talking about?
7: This this question may overlap a great deal, but it's distributed generation, I guess. And I was struck by the highway analogy that people were using. So that you get too much traffic, you have to build a bigger highway. And that gets filled up, you have to build a bigger highway, as opposed to kind of a smart growth, can be work and live close together, etc. So if you move generation and load close together... Can you avoid some of the expensive infrastructure? And in thinking about the investment imperatives that you discuss,
8: um, is there a broader framework to weigh? Do we invest in batteries versus do we invest in transmission? Do we invest in distributed generation or versus transmission? So the question is, how is
5: distributed generation considered? I think, or you discussed that to some extent, but again, I think there is a broader framework.
1: So we need all of it. That's the first piece. Distributed generation, I think, has really come into the discussion as an alternative because we have so much renewable energy coming into the supply mix. And so there's an interesting engagement. Uh, I do some work with water and wastewater utilities. How do you use their processes as a form of virtual storage? And so I'll look at just San Diego, there's over 500 megawatts of customer water, not, not in front of the meter like big pumps to pump like the California Aqueduct, but behind the meter. And, and so they're now in a dialogue with the electric utilities to find the common language, to find a way to use their processes. And so it's, I, I believe it's mostly that renewable energy changes the nature of supply. We used to, as grid operators, say, well, I can just put more generation on the system, but if the sun's not out or if the wind's not blowing, I don't have that solution of old. And so I think that's where we're starting to look at the flexibility in customer resources and the willingness of customers to be smarter energy users, again, through technology and education and the need for firming renewable energy in the because it all has to balance, and and so they are another resource, and so storage and the virtual storage are, are becoming very important. Yeah,
5: I just wanted to add one thing. I, I think that you know
2: battery technologies is a potential game changer.
5: Um, I think the limiting factor for, for large scale adaptation of you know, renewable energy has always been you know as as was mentioned you know what do you do when the sun doesn't shine, what do you do when the wind doesn't blow. Um, if if you have the ability to store energy when the sun shines and the wind blows uh, and then release it during times when it doesn't um, that to me is a it's a paradigm shift for, for our industry and you know I know you know Tesla for example you know a, a Tesla battery um, you know stores enough energy to power a normal sized home for about two and a half days so you know, that technology is probably not as far away as we might think it is. Um, and so I think it's incumbent upon those of us who are in the industry um, you know, to be prepared for that, that type of eventuality and, and, and be ready for you know, the ground to shift underneath us. One last
0: question, anybody? Uh. Yes, sir?
8: Um, I was just wondering if we could have um, a show of hands from the speakers uh, who are familiar with a uh, new NOAA study that um, uh, on solar and, um, and wind uh, energy and its uh, potential now to reduce carbon emissions by 90%, but it will require apparently um, major transmission investments on a more than regional basis. And I would be we well, one of our board members is wondering if you are aware of this study. Who's
0: who study
4: is it? No, I, no. I don't want to study that. No. Uh, oh. yeah. I am very. Happy. <laughs> I'm not specifically aware of the details, but but I think you know we, we've seen studies like that before. And if you um, that, this whole thing's been a exercise of regret because there's a couple of slides I wish I had, and one of them is the slide from NREL that shows you where the best renewable resources are in the country. If you overlay that transmission grid that Laura put up, they're not in the same place. Um, so depending on what level of, of renewable integration you, you think you're going to have is going to directly drive a significant transmission build-out. Um, so I I, you know, I think that's beyond, beyond debate, at least in my mind. And I think I, there are about eight
6: or nine trans, uh, long line transmission projects, and I'm talking from 300 miles to 800 miles right now that are in play or in process, so to speak, for uh, moving that wind energy west and east. Yeah, that, right get, that Gateway West project is one of those
7: that thousand miles to bring the wind from Wyoming into the load centers of the northwest. So, and you know, likewise, there are a thousand mile plus lines from a lot of it is in, in those areas is wind in Wyoming going to Las Vegas and California. I mean, that's um, that's. Uh, encouraging, uh, daunting. I think it also brings distributed generation back into play. Are we really considering um, a 1,000-mile transmission line to bring in wind? So it
1: just, I think, raises a lot of issues. We're only limited by our imagination. There's a really fun study out of MIT on how you move computer computations across the country to follow your solar panels, for example. And so if you think about all the things you can tie together, yes, you need the wires to bring a lot of it. But if you can use smarts and move, you know, I'm going to compute on the East Coast because the sun is up, my solar panels are working, I'm moving it to the West Coast. And there's been some studies done in California to actually move Computations between supercomputers so I can take advantages of prices, I can take advantages of local resources, and so I, I think we're just at the beginning of a brand new conversation around all of this, and thank you for bringing that up.
6: Just think of one point on these large transmission lines that are hundreds of miles to a thousand mile long. At one point you have the people who are producing the power with the windmills who are making money from the sale of that power. At the other end you have the consumers of that power. And that 500 to 1,000 miles in between, you have all the people who are going to look at that transmission line and say, why is it going to be there? It's not going to help me. So
4: one thing turns out to be a major problem. Sorry. Sorry, Jeff. One thing I wanted to mention was just to bring this back to the policy. It really ties back to one of the policy justifications in Order 1000 um, about having these regional planning processes Whereby stakeholders can participate in that development. And it's one of the things we talked about states and other and utilities and other entities and end users are all involved in that process to really choose that future. How are they going to balance that investment in a thousand megawatt or a thousand mile transmission line versus encouraging distributed generation on the state level? It's really an attempt to bring all those things together into a planning process so that we build the right transmission for customers. Um, because that's in first view what it makes for just and reasonable rates is that we're building the, the vast and most needed transmission. Well, we're going to wrap it up, except I see that Bill White is standing there with a the microphone. So yeah, gonna... I, I, I'm uh, sorry, Jim.
8: Uh, <laughs> I, I'm Bill White with uh, uh, Americans for Clean Energy Grid. And I just wanted to uh, first agree with what, what Laura said about um, we're going to need it all, absolutely. We're going to need it all. We're going to need the grid. We're going to need all those local solutions, efficiency, so forth, all the technology, all the smart technology, all that stuff, all at the same time to get where we need to go, which I think is very high renewable, low carbon energy on the grid. Uh, But I I also want to, I think, a point that may get lost here. Transmission projects individually are quite expensive. In aggregate, they're a very small part of your bill. They're 10 to 12 percent, depending on who you talk to. Generation is over 60 percent of your bill, Uh, and the rest is the distribution. So... um, Using transmission to lower the cost of generation uh, is generally a good deal, and it's why the benefit cost ratios primarily of many big transmission projects are so favorable, uh, and many recent ones in particular. So uh, I think that's just important to keep in mind. The second point I make is no resources benefit more from transmission, especially high-voltage transmission, than renewables do. Uh, they're, they're widely distributed. Uh, they can be balanced. Their variability, diverse renewables can be balanced over large regions with high-voltage transmission. So, uh, transmission helps renewables more than it helps anything else. Uh, And those low cost resources, which were mentioned, um, uh, I think uh, Jeff mentioned, the the NREL uh, map that we've all seen a hundred times, are places where uh, we don't have transmission right now. And if you cite things there, the generation there, those resources are really cheap and they're really abundant. So I would just throw those out, I know these projects are really expensive, they're, as Jack pointed out, they're really hard to build. They're tough, but um, they also deliver a lot of value in many cases if we do it right.
7: And actually, I would also just um, add on top of that that one of the things to consider is that with um, a lot of these um, long haul, long distance, high voltage lines, uh, a key thing that people may not realize is that there are stakeholders and non-governmental organizations that are advocating for these, including the Wilderness Society, and other entities that you would not really associate with large-scale infrastructure development, but it's because of um, the ability to tap into the renewable generation.
0: You have to remember that Greenpeace is advocating a super grid for Europe, so, you know, it's a new world. Build transmission, save the whales. Uh, Those are my final words. Uh, We're gonna wrap this up. Uh, I'm, uh, I'm, uh, we're going to be back in about six weeks with uh, another transmission uh, thing. It's going to be a little higher level. We're going to be talking about grid resilience, physical and cyber security. We'll be talking a little bit about maybe some cost allocation issues. It'll we'll your your job to come back. It will be, it'll be uh, another good panel, too. Thank
1: you. And I want to thank Jim for putting together a dynamite panel. And as he said, we hope to bring you this other briefing and thank you all very, very much for being here, and thank you all very much.